Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you for the most unusual introduction to a meeting that I've ever been to in my 52 years of recovery, and I love it. I just love it. I love that you could be this spontaneous and, and go from wherever you are, man, because that's, you know, that's letting go of all those shoulds, right? What it should look like, and that's quite a quite an effort for all of us to get rid of those damn shoulds. They just haunt us and haunt me through my life. Um, so thanks for having me, Mark. And um, let me just tell you a few things about where I'm at right now, just so if you see me wincing or anything like that, it's, um, I had a total, um, a hip conversion that went into a total hip replacement um, 16 days ago. So I'm 16 days post-surgery. And um, I'm, um, I've been doing, I think, quite well. I've been very grateful for that surgery because I was really in bad shape going into it. I was in an awful lot of chronic pain for about seven or eight weeks. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And then they realized that uh, I had a serious problem in my left hip. And when I was 13 years old, I had a slipped epiphysis, which means that the the ball slipped out of the socket in my left hip. And they took a pin that's about three pins that are about 12 millimeters in dia uh, diameter. And they took them and they bored them up into my, through my uh, ball and into my hip joint to hold that hip in place. And it worked for 58 years. Pretty amazing, right? But then it, when it didn't work, it didn't work. The pin slipped out and they started scraping on the inside of that hip joint. And that caused a lot of pain. So the surgery was a bit more complicated than just a hip replacement because they had to drill those pins out. And after 58 years, my bone, you should see them, it's grown all around him. So he had to take a drill bit, a 14 millimeter drill bit hollow and drill around the pins and pull them out then they cut off my femur and replaced my hip. So that's where I sit today. And um, I would tell you that, you know, look, part of getting through this and the way I'm getting through this is because of emotional sobriety. And what I've been able to discover about that on my journey. So I want to share with you a little bit about just my journey real quick in recovery. And I just want to really then segue into talking to you about emotional sobriety, which has been my passion for, I would say, about the last 30 years of my recovery and my profession. Um, my journey started back in 1971. I came back from Vietnam um, in 71. I was a U.S. Marine. I went in the Marine Corps in 1969. I volunteered. And I volunteered as a way of trying to deal with my teenage alcohol problem. I was a teenage alcoholic. I drank to blackouts several times a week, dropped out of high school. My life was going nowhere. And I decided that maybe if I become one of the few, the proud, the Marines, that it would change my life. And it did, but not in the way I expected it to. No way could I have planned for what has happened the last 52 years in my life. So I uh, went in the Marine Corps in 69. I volunteered for Vietnam in 1970, went to Vietnam in 70. And in Vietnam, I got exposed to drugs other than alcohol. And I had the same reaction. When I had the first drink when I was about 12 years old, 
I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but the minute I had that drink, an alcoholic was born. What I experienced with that first drink was a sense of freedom. I had for that moment that I was drinking freedom from all of the grief, the pain, the insecurity, the depression, the, the anxiety that I experienced in life. And that drink worked. It took me away from all of it. And if one was going to be good, more was going to be better. And I sprinted headlong into alcoholism at 12 years old. Blacking out at least once a week. Dropped out of high school at 16 because it was interfering with my partying. Went into Marine Corps at 17. Went to Vietnam, like I said, in 70. And then I got exposed to drugs other than alcohol. And they did the same thing. They created a... A, a pseudo sense of personal freedom, a false sense of personal freedom. For that moment that I was getting high or drunk, I was okay being Alan. But that was the only time I was okay being Alan. I had no idea how to deal with any of the feelings, the experiences, and the trauma that had occurred in my life. None. And, you know, I, I was raised, you know, you know, you know, this back in the 40s and 50s, my my family was very traditional. And my father was, you know, one of those real, what I would call back then a real man. And what I learned from this real man is that men suffer in silence. They don't turn to anybody for help. They try to figure it out themselves. And I saw that because he died from cancer. He got cancer when he was 38 years old, multiple myeloma. And for that next year, I was 10 years old when he was diagnosed. I watched him die from cancer. And I never saw the man once cry about it. I never saw him once talk about his feelings and his pain about it. And I had a lot of feelings about it. And I look back, I wish we would have had those conversations more than anything in the world. But they didn't happen because he was going to suffer in silence. He thought that he had to somehow protect us from his feelings. I truly believe that today. And of course, after he died, and I was devastated by that, and I felt not only the loss of him, but my mother fell into her grief, my grandfather. Really, there was nobody there in my life. Not one person in my life turned to me when I was 11 and said, how are you doing after your father's dead? And he meant the world to me, you guys. I mean, I, I idealize this man. And no one turned to me and said, what's going on? How are you doing with this? What's it like losing this man that, that means so much to you? Nobody. And I didn't turn to anybody either. I realize that now. I did not go to anyone and say, hey, I just lost my dad. And it's just devastating to me. I don't know. I feel scared. I don't feel safe anymore in this world. I couldn't talk about those things. Those words wouldn't come through my mouth. I felt them all. And at that point in life, I made a decision to be self-reliant. From that point on, I was just going to rely on myself. I couldn't rely on anybody else. Now, that's a pretty tall order when you're 11 years old. My God, I don't have that capacity to do that, to be able to take care of myself to that degree. Are you kidding me? 
But from that moment on, from 11 on, the rest of my life became a test of my invulnerability. I didn't want to need anyone. I didn't want to need anything. I didn't want anything to be important to me because if it, if I let it, I was going to get hurt and I was going to get disappointed. And I didn't want to feel that kind of devastation and pain ever again in my life that I felt when I lost my dad. So talk about a ripe host, right? A host environment to become alcoholic. Because if I didn't rely on anything, I had to rely on something. So when I got that drink at 12 years old, I thought I could rely on this. The alcohol wasn't going to disappoint me. I could turn to that because I didn't trust turning to people. I didn't trust that anybody would be there. So I turned to the alcohol. And then later on, I turned to drugs other than alcohol. Well, you know where that led, led me. I'm, I totally know and believe I'm powerless over alcohol. I, I could never predict when I was going to lose control. I would black out. Experience after experience taught me that. And then in 1971, after being home for 30 days, after being in Vietnam, they gave me 30 days of liberty. And I partied, man. I partied hard. For 30 days, I'd start the day with a, some vodka and apple juice and drop some acid and smoke some marijuana and, you know, whatever was going on. And I just partied hard for 30 days. My last duty station was in Hawaii on the island of Kaneohe at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. And so on my way to my last duty station, all my buddies you know, gave me some drugs to keep the party going in Hawaii. Well, when I got to Los Angeles, they had the metal detectors set up right before you boarded the airplane. Because in 71, there was a lot of international hijacking taking place. So <clears throat> I got to the LAX and I changed planes from Chicago. And I look and I see them searching everybody and I go, oh, shit. I've got all these drugs in my pocket. I'm going to, I'm going to get busted. I got to do something. Now, had I not partied for 30 days, I would have probably been more thoughtful and gone in the bathroom and just flushed the drugs down the toilet. Right. Nobody would have known anything, but I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind. The only option I saw was they had these ashtrays in the airport in 71, because you could still smoke them in the airport. And they were filled with sand. And so I came up with this plan that I would mosey over to an ashtray, grab a handful of the drugs in my pocket, bury them in the sand and move over to the next one until I got rid of all the stuff in my pocket. Well, I must have looked so darn obvious doing this, right? Because two LAX police officers were following me around and just digging up the drugs I was burying. So I go through the line thinking, I'm safe, I'm okay, I'm not going to have any problem. And they say, hey, Marine, come with me. And they took me in the back room and they had all these drugs that I had that I had buried in these ashtrays at the airport. Well, I thought, oh, shit, I'm in trouble now. You know, I'm going to jail or something like that and start talking to the guys. And turns out one of the police officers 
was a Marine, um, an MP, a military police, and he was stationed in the same place I was stationed when I went to Da Nang, China Beach. And as we talked about it, he was there at the same time I was, 1970 to 71. So he says, listen, Berger, and on the other condition, I would go ahead and arrest you right now, but I'm just going to go ahead and make a call to the commanding officer and let him know what happened here. So get your ass on that plane. So now I think when I get to Hawaii, I'm going to get busted, right? They're going to have the MPs waiting for me. He made this call. I'm in trouble. Well, nobody was waiting for me. So I thought, well, they'll be waiting for me at the unit when I check in. Well, nobody was there. So as I always did, I always came up with a scheme on how to get out of the trouble that I was in, that I caused because of my using and my drinking. So I decided I would just turn myself in the next day to the first sergeant, tell him I got a drug problem, and that would be the end of it. They would get me out of the Corps because at that point they had a zero tolerance for drug users in the Marine Corps. So I go to Top the next day and say, hey, Top, I've got a problem with drugs. I need some help. And he looks down and he starts shuffling papers on his desk like this, right? Going through a bunch of papers. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is he doing? I just told him I had a drug problem. And he pulled out this one sheet of paper and he starts looking at it. He says, you know, Berger, you are one lucky Marine. And I'm going, I just told this guy I got a drug problem. How can I be a lucky Marine? What's he talking about? He says, three days ago, the Commandant signed into an order that instead of throwing your sorry ass out of my Marine Corps, you're going to rehab. I was the third Marine admitted to the drug exemption program the third day that the program existed. Wow. Talk about serendipity or synchronicity. I don't know what it was, but that saved my life. That was the summer of 1971. In fact, it was July of 71. Go to the program. They had no idea what they were doing. The program was brand new. But they knew they didn't know, and they turned to the community, the A community outside the base, because at that point in time, Narcotics Anonymous was only in California, New York, and it had not yet been to Hawaii, and there were no NA meetings. So they invited some young people to come out and share their story with us, and the first one that came out to this recovery group was this guy by the name of Tom. And now, so you got a picture, there's about 20 combat Marines in this room, and this hippie walks in, and he's going to share with us about recovery. Well, it was kind of a weird juxtaposition of energy, no question about it. But what happened that day saved my life. Um, when Tom started to talk about his experience, strength and hope, I was blown away. I had never experienced another person that was that authentic and that on honest about himself and what was going on in his life. I had never seen that kind of vulnerability. And I did not think that it was possible to share the things that he was sharing and to be okay. You see, what Tom had that day that I look back and see now, he had that freedom that I felt when I picked up that change. He was free 
to be whoever he was. He was free to talk about his experience. He was free to talk about his depression, his anxieties, his insecurities. And I did not dare let anybody know about those things because I thought if you knew about that, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't like me. I wouldn't be acceptable. I wouldn't belong. So I felt like I had to play this role. I had to be this self that I wasn't to be okay. And Tom was being who he was and he was okay with that. My goodness, that was never a possibility in my consciousness at that point in time. Now, I was 19 years old, I was rather young, but I was blown away. And at that moment, something inside of me awakened. Now, I couldn't have used these words at that time, but I think the feeling I had was that if I could feel that way in life, if I could experience that kind of freedom from how I was living my life, then I wouldn't need to drink or use again ever again in my life. That I could make sense of this life and make life work. Very powerful experience. Maybe that's what the big book means by attraction, not promotion. Because what he had is what I wanted. And I wouldn't even have known that I wanted it until I saw it until I saw him living it. He was a living example. I heard that there was a Catholic saint that used to say, everywhere you go, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. <laughs> everywhere you go, preach the gospel. Sometimes that's what Tom was doing. And he wasn't using his words. It was who he was as a person that just blew me away. I became excited about this possibility that there could be another way of living my life, not having to run away from who I was, but to be able to embrace who I was, to be able to be curious. So I went up to him after the meeting. You guys have heard this part a long time. Well, hey, how did you do this? And he says, stick close. I will show you how. And I have. Tom McCall is still my sponsor today after 52 years in the program. 52 years he's been my sponsor. I feel grateful beyond words in terms of being able to have a relationship with another human being that is so meaningful and significant in my life. And it's just, it's been a, a, a foundation that my whole life has been built on is that relationship. Because what Tom saw in me, I couldn't have seen in myself at that point in time. He saw a possibility in who I was that, that was a faint glimmer in my consciousness. So that began my journey. I stuck close to him. I was so grateful that he was, you know, he took me through the steps in that first year that I knew him. We worked hard. Every day I would go and hang out with him. And I started to lay the foundation for this new way of life that I was living. So let me talk about that, you know, in terms of what this journey has met and what some of the changes that I've experienced. Um, the first thing is that I realized that a lot of the ideas that I had about who I was supposed to be, how I was supposed to be, 
what life was supposed to be, what you were supposed to be like, were all really, really backwards. In fact, many of them were incredibly unrealistic. You see, any life, I think, that is based on a rejection of who we are can never work. And that's what my life was based on. The big lie was that I had to be somebody other than who I was for, my, for me to be okay. And I tried hard to be somebody I wasn't. And trust me, I mean, I really tried to put on a mask and pretend to be something I wasn't over and over again. And I didn't realize that underneath that was an incredible self-hate, a total rejection of who I was. And the things I rejected about myself were all based on my humanity. Like I couldn't stand the fact that I felt insecure at times. I couldn't stand the fact that I would be ignorant. I couldn't stand the fact that I'd be stupid. I couldn't stand the fact that I, I would be lost. I would be confused. I wouldn't know what to do. I couldn't stand the fact that I had needs and wants and desires. Those were wrong. They seemed dangerous to me. Well, as I started my journey in recovery, I started to face all of these things and started to realize that a big part of recovery was letting go of all of these ideas of who I thought I needed to be, of what I thought life needed to be. In fact, all of my ideas created what Bill Wilson called in this letter he wrote in 1953 that was later published in the 58 Great Crime underneath the title, um, The Next Frontier in Recovery, Emotional Sobriety. He called the, his, his way of thinking and what it created an impossible way of life. Now, what made what I was thinking an impossible way of life? Well, what it made an impossible way of life is that I expected life to be a certain way for me to be okay. I expected that I had to be a certain way to be okay. That I couldn't imagine that being okay meant being who I was. That being okay meant learning how to deal with life as it was. That being okay meant having an appropriate and honest relationship with reality. That could have never crossed my mind. Like I had this idea that life should somehow just be easy. Well, my God, that creates an impossible way of life because when it's not easy, what's the conclusion I draw? Well, something's wrong. Something is wrong with you if you're making my life difficulty or something's wrong with me. Instead of saying, no, there's nothing wrong. Life is difficult. Now we got to figure out how to cope with it. You see, that's the one gift I think that I've gotten from emotional sobriety is the problem is never the problem. The problem is always how I am coping with whatever experience I am having. Prior to understanding that, when I would have an experience, the experience would claim me. I did not know how to change my relationship to my experience. 
Emotional sobriety has given me a way to claim that experience instead of being claimed by it. And that today I realize that my happiness determines not by what's happening to me, but by relationship to what's happening. A lot of things happen in our life that are out of our control. But, but what I can manage is with help from you, with help from some therapy, with help from the program and the steps, I can learn how to manage my relationship to that experience. So instead of me needing to change that experience, I need to change myself and how I'm related to that experience. Well, today I realize that's becoming able to respond instead of react or what we would call responsible. You see, before, when I was claimed by an experience, I would just react. And I would blame you. You make me feel this way. You make me angry. You make me feel insecure. You make me scared. Well, today I realize nobody makes me feel anything. I feel what I feel because of who I am, not because of what you're doing. You're doing whatever you do. My reaction to you is my reaction. One of Bill's great gifts with emotional sobriety is to say to live between the stimulus and your reaction. He calls it, you know, restraint of, of tongue and pen is how he describes it in the big book. Um, Dr. Viktor Frankl calls it that there's a space between the stimulus and our reaction. He says in that space, is where you want to live in that space is where you're going to discover your power to choose. I think about it in that space is where we're going to discover our emotional sobriety. In that space, I'm going to, you know, discover my best possible response to whatever situation is going on. That's going to help me deal with it and cope with it in a better way. So I think we could summarize in some way what this whole thing of emotional sobriety means is it's changing our consciousness. It's going from a consciousness that's very much determined by external factors, meaning that our locus of control is externalized, to a consciousness that's based on who I am and not what's happening to me. I say that we go from a consciousness that says I'm okay if to a consciousness that says I'm okay even if. We go from a consciousness that says I'm okay if to a consciousness that says I'm okay even if. I can give you a very, very powerful example of this. It's in one of my books, but I share it a lot because it may be one of the most meaningful experiences I've had with emotional sobriety and how to cope with a challenging situation in my life. I have two young children right now. I have, um, I actually have four children, two adult children and two young children. My young children are 10 and five years old. So Maddie is the 10 year old. So before Maddie was born, um, Jess and I, um, she's my ex-wife now, but Jess and I, uh, she was working on her postdoc at UCLA. 
And we went through the midwife group at UCLA to have uh, Maddie, to deliver Maddie, to bring Maddie into the world and great group. But if you go through UCLA, they do all these tests. I mean, they do a bunch of research, they've got grants. So they wanted to do a bunch of genetic testing to make sure that if Maddie was going to be born and born with some kind of a congenital problem, that they would already have the resources mobilized and indoctrinate us as parents in terms of how to cope, to anticipate um, the situation and to, to learn to cope best with it. So they take a bunch of blood from her, um, which is interesting because if she doesn't have anything going on, it doesn't matter what's going on with me. I can only add to the problem. I can't create it. Too bad that wasn't true across the board, right? That, that would be a sense of emotional sobriety right there. So we're going to the well baby visits and stuff and everything's progressing as it should. And then all of a sudden, one day I'm driving to work and we just left uh, the midwife's office and she says, oh my God, she called me, she's in tears. She goes, after you left, I got called back to the midwife. So what happened? She says, well, there's a problem that, that your genetic testing came back and you tested positive for this gene. And if your husband also tests positive for this gene and your child will have a 25% chance of being born with what's called spinal muscular atrophy. And the midwife went on to say that under the worst condition, that child will only live to a year and a half. Under the best, she'll survive until she's 14. Well, no parent that's expecting wants to hear this. She was, of course, incredibly devastated. And then when she called me, I started crying immediately as well and started to feel incredibly anxious. Uh, got back to UCLA, obviously canceled all my clients. And um, now I have to give blood and we have to wait for my test to come back to see if I also carry this gene. Well, it takes six weeks to do the testing. So there's a six week hiatus between being told that there might be a problem to finding out if what the reality is of our situation. So of course, you know, we're treating it as though I've got the problem and that our child is gonna have this terrible condition. And you know, what they say is this, the brighter you are, the more catastrophic your thinking can be. Well, my thinking was quite catastrophic that day. I was freaked out. She was freaked out. I'm imagining the worst. And the worst is that this child's never going to be off a ventilator. Because what the spinal muscular atrophy does is it weakens the muscles around the lungs and the child's never able to respirate on their own. Um, so it was just a horrible day. I reached out to my sponsor. He was soothing. I reached out to a bunch of friends and they were also comforting and stuff like that. But Nothing was taking away the anxiety that I was feeling or the anxiety my wife was feeling at that point. So as usual, I, uh, I think it was about, God, 11 o'clock at night, we're getting tired and I'm saying, I, you know, try to fall asleep. And, you know, when you're in, when I was in a state like that, the sleep is never good. It's very restless, tossing and turning. But I do believe that in some way that, Something happens in our unconscious at night. Scott Peck says he believes that God talks to us through our unconscious at night. Whatever it was, there was something happening to me. And I've experienced this before, like struggling with a problem. I remember learning 
some analysis of variance when I was in graduate school and I couldn't figure out this one problem and I slept on it one night and I woke up and I just go, oh, I see it. I see the answer. It's like my brain was working on solving this while I was sleeping. And I think that's what happened that night because I woke up and I suddenly realized what the matter was, that I was letting this situation we were in determine how I was going to feel. And I stepped back and I said, well, what's my truth? My truth is that I wanted this child and I would bring this child into this world unconditionally. If God gave me her for a year and a half, then I would love her a lifetime in a year and a half. If I was so lucky to have her 14 years, then I would love her a lifetime in 14 years. At that moment, I took back my emotional center of gravity. Instead of putting it in the situation I was in and letting the situation I was in determine how I was going to feel, I stepped back and got in touch with what this meant for me. The minute I said that out loud, my anxiety was gone. The minute I shared it with my wife, her anxiety was gone. We moved from this horrible nightmare situation to a situation of acceptance. This is the reality. Now, how do I best deal with it? And the way I could best deal with it was to know that I was going to love this child no matter what. Then the second thing hit me. And the second thing was, is that the child will never know the difference. Her reality will be whatever our, the reality is, is that we create. She'll only see the world through her eyes, not mine. I know that there's possibilities for her, but she'll not never understand it. She'll understand the world the way that we created for her. And that gave me a sense of relief too. So that experience gave me a very personal experience with emotional sobriety. It showed me that under any condition whatsoever, I can learn to meet that condition and find a way to get my balance back, to be able to cope with it so that I feel good about the situation. You see, I never knew how to do that before. I never, never grew up enough to know that my job is to cope with life as it is. It's not for life to do what I want it to do. But for me to figure out a way how to show up for life and to meet whatever task or challenges life sets before me. That is the heart of emotional sobriety. I'm okay even if things don't go my way. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get upset at times. That doesn't mean I don't falter. That doesn't mean I don't get angry with situations and stuff like that. I still do at times. But the amount of time I stay stuck in objecting to and feeling sorry for myself is so much less than it's ever been before. More than ever today, I can recover my balance rather quickly and get on with the fact of dealing with whatever I have to deal with, learning or coping with whatever issues I have to learn and cope with. So that's the journey that I've been on in terms of emotional sobriety. Um, what a change. What a difference that's made in my life. You know, it's back to this thing. No matter what, regardless of what kind of experience I'm having in life, my job is to figure out the best way to cope with it. 
So I'm a little bit fatigued from the surgery I had. So I think that that's all I'd like to share now. But I, if we can, we can open it up and have you guys ask some questions about it or or share with you what this means to you in terms of your recovery now. And we can spend as much time doing that as we need to. I'm probably good for another 30 minutes or so.